0: 3rd John. We're going to begin in in a bit of a a strange place. We're going to go to Acts chapter 20. Paul in that chapter, you'll recall, uh, has gone to a place called Miletus. He has uh, asked all of the Ephesian elders to meet him there for one last time, he talks about his affection for them and his love for them and how much he cares for them. And then he begins to talk to them about what it's going to mean for them to be shepherds of a church like the one in Ephesus. And he says in verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And then Paul renews this warning to Timothy, who just happened to be ministering in Ephesus as well, He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, "...for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths." And you'll remember that this idea of genealogies and myths and this this endless talking that Paul talked about in the first chapter of uh, 1 Timothy is continuing on in this second letter that he writes to Timothy in Ephesus. Now, towards the end of the first century, John has to deal with what he refers to as as a, 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 a horrible, terrible situation in that church where he writes, "...do not believe every spirit." But test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. The Antichrist, uh, in the most simplest definition that we can, we can give, is the person that denies that uh, Jesus came in the flesh or the Messiah came in the flesh. Denies the incarnation. Now, what Paul has written about and what John is writing about is that there are these, these individuals, uh, Paul will refer to them as savage wolves, not just wolves in sheep's clothing, but savage wolves. Those that are intent on tearing up people's lives. The savage wolves, they're false teachers, they're false prophets. In Second John verse 7, he refers to them as deceivers and the Antichrist here in First John chapter 4. These were not making life in the Ephesian church very easy. And apparently what had happened is that after a period of time trying to teach and to teach and to teach this false doctrine and not having a whole lot of uh, uh, success, they split away from the church. Probably because of the very reason that they had not had a lot of success trying to convert members to their way of thinking. That's why John says in chapter 2, verse 18, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, the problems that these individuals presented to the church are many. They denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. That is what the term Antichrist means. And and, and one of the issues that, that the church was having with the idea that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that He was only a spirit. There is some... Some writing, even though it's kind of debated these days, about this form of Gnosticism. It, the, the form of it was called Doceticism, that it was a, a special kind of wisdom for the, the initiated that understood that you know, the material world was bad, the spiritual world was, was, was what was really, count, really counted for anything in the kingdom, and so they, they were denying that God Himself could actually be in the flesh. The problem with that was if Jesus did not die in the flesh, then how could He save me in my flesh? My sin is not just in my mind or in my thought processes or in my words that are out there and sometimes very abstract, but very in very tangible, physical ways and very literal ways of behavior and ethic. My sin is in the body. And if Jesus did not die on the cross in His body, then how can my, my, my sin in the body be redeemed? Not only that, they, you look at chapter 1, what you see is kind of this idea that here are some people that have become uh, in a sense arrogant and prideful in their thinking about their level of spirituality that they have attained because of this great Gnostic or this great uh, special enlightened wisdom that they have that they were not dominated by sin in their life. Now, this church had overcome that. They had overcome that. He's going to write in chapter 4 and verse 4, you are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. But problems persisted. It seems that John is still needing to encourage and to assure this little church that their relationship with God is in fact solid and intact. You know, you can come through uh, 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 some kind of a struggle in a relationship. You can come through some kind of a a theology debate and, and come out on the other side of it in the right place, but not unscathed. And it seems that this, this little church in Ephesus is still struggling with what their relationship with God does entail. And so he writes in 1 John chapter 5 verse 13, the, the entire intent of the letter, which is, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may what know so that you may know that you have eternal life." The experience, again, of this struggle, of this strife, of of this this split off of of these false teachers has left this little church feeling inferior and spiritually threatened. In fact, at some point they begin to wonder if they still have the Spirit. And that's why John writes to them in chapter 2 and verse 27 that the anointing you received from Him remains in you. He is trying to bolster the confidence of this church and to help clarify some of their thinking and to understand that their relationship with God the Father is intact. Now, four things, and this is is going to be kind of a quick run-through of what the book is about, but here are the teachings from the shepherd John to his church. Number one, they need to return to joy. Return to joy. Here's a church that has has gone through the ringer. They're struggling. They're struggling. They are, they are not healthy. They're not dead, but they are not healthy. They're struggling. And so one of the things that John is going to counsel them to do is to, to sense the joy once again, to return to joy. He says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 4, we write this to make our joy what? Complete. This joy that John speaks of is not merely garden variety, vanilla flavored joy, but it's complete joy. Now where does that come from? Drop back one verse to verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father. The fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Every once in a while in, 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 in reading, and, and, and I do a, a really a massive amount of reading during, during the week, I, I get to the point where I read slowly enough that the impact of a verse hits me like it has never hit me before. And I'm, I'm really astounded by the implications of this verse, that we have fellowship with the Father. He calls it koinonia, which is a word that we know very, very well in our fellowship. Koinonia is fellowship. It's, it's, it's used all over the place. In fact, John uses it a couple of times in this verse. To have koinonia in the original language is to share something. Paul will talk about people being in koinonia with him in the Gospel, that there are partners with him. It's something that ties them together. It's a a special kind of a life. It's to share into something. It's to to have something in common. And John is saying that believers have fellowship with God. Now, to step back from that for just a moment, one of the really easy ways for human beings to get into trouble is to only think one-dimensionally about things. A husband who only thinks one-dimensionally about his wife, she's somebody that takes care of the kids. She's somebody that maybe only, uh, he only sees her as somebody that takes care of the house. Or the wife who only sees her husband one-dimensionally, he's only a paycheck. That will put a marriage in, in dire straits. The same thing is true with Salvation. To be saved does not merely mean to be delivered from the penalty of sin, but to be delivered into a relationship with God. It is a basic part of the Christian life to sense God's love. It's it's a basic part, it's foundational of the Christian life to sense the presence of God and to know Him as Father. Paul is going to say that God's Spirit testifies to our Spirit that He is a, a, a Father that we refer to as Abba. That that Spirit testifies to our sonship. That means we are His children. That's not just that's not just a metaphor. There is very much the experience of God the Father and we as His sons and daughters that is just foundational to the life of a Christian. That's one of the reasons why in John chapter 15, one of the last teachings that, John, that Jesus gives to His disciples before going to the cross, He says, as the Father has loved Me, so I have loved you. Now, in the context of that, Jesus has not given them some kind of an abstract treatise on what it means to to, uh, to to know that that He, the Christ, has loved them. In the context of that teaching, they've just come out of the Lord's Supper where He has said to them, you know, this is my body and this is my blood and this has been given to establish a new covenant with you. And right before that, what has He done? Knowing That He is going back to the Father. Having come to the Father, He's going back to the Father and all power being given to Him. He loved those that had been given to Him, but now He shows them the full extent of His love by doing what? Washing their feet. And believe it or not, you have... I think if you reconstruct the scene around that triclinium, that that C-shaped table that they were eating at, Jesus in the, the place of the, the, the head of the household or the one that's conducting the, the supper, you have the disciple who loved him who leans into his his bosom or into his breast uh, at one point in John chapter 13, which means that he's on the right side. Guess who it is that I think is on the left side? It's Judas. He says, the one that will betray me is the one that I dip this bread in and, and, and share with, and he hands it next to him, to Judas. And what happens there in showing the extent of his love and loving them to the very end, what is it that that Jesus does? He washes their feet. He does one of the most servile, uh, menial, disgusting tasks that could be imagined in the first century. And when they thought back about this event, not one of them, in the way that Jesus was showing His love to them in that event, saw any difference in the way that He did it to John or to Peter or to James in the way that He had done it to Judas. As the Father has loved me completely, utterly, profoundly, so have I loved you. Now remain in My love. If you keep My commands, you will remain in My love. Just as I have kept My Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that My what joy may be in you and your joy may be say complete. My question is, why is there so little experience of the greatness of God, of the experience of God, of the fellowship with God in, in our day to day. Well, the reason for that, one of the most foundational reasons I think is the darkness. And that's why not only does does John talk about it returning to a sense of joy, a joy that is complete, because of fellowship with the God with God the Father, but you've got to resolve the issues of the darkness in your life. Darkness is the problem that all humans face. Darkness is the problem that we have to contend with. Problems that that, that stem out of the seeds of the destruction that are in our heart are all part of the problem of darkness. That's why he says in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from Him and declared to you. God is what? Light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth you know one of the greatest issues that i deal with is not recogn- recognizing the darkness that's in me not recognizing the darkness that is in each of us is why we make the bad decisions that we make it's it's why we do the things sometimes that we don't understand we know better we know better than to do that. We know, if we'd have thought maybe 15 seconds longer, we would never have done it. But we did it anyway. It's why we're cruel. It's why at times we're volatile. It's why we're greedy. It's why we're materialistic. It is because of the darkness. It's why we are, are, are doing the things that we really don't want to do. And the unfortunate thing is that the problem that we have just learned to live with and to accept. That's just what it means to be a human being. Well, not only did Christ not accept that, but neither did his, 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 his Apostle John. In verse 5, he says, God is light. In Him there's no darkness. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, this what purifies us from all sin. But one of the ways that you resolve the darkness in in your life is to to every day, every single day, one of the first things that you do is to recognize the Christ. Uh, In our Sunday morning class, uh, the family's class, Daryl Hutchinson is teaching uh, a class on the Ten Commandments. And over and over again, it, it comes back to me, the importance of recognizing that first commandment. There is no other God but God. To recognize every day that, that there is one God. To recognize every morning in, 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 in fellowship with the Christ, that to, to recognize the reality of, of, of Jesus. 1 John is, is one of the great places in the Bible to fill your mind with thoughts about the greatness of the Christ. John refers to Jesus at the beginning of chapter 2 as our advocate, which means that in our time of need, with, with not being able to handle the problems that we're faced with, not being able to stand in that court and to argue effectively against the... the, uh, the the, uh, the, the lies and, and, and the, uh, the accusations of the evil one, not being able to do that to, to any extent to bring salvation to us. We have Christ as His advocate. In chapter 4, He is the Savior of the world. In chapter 2, he's, He becomes the model by which we live. One of my favorite verses on discipleship is found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. It, it cannot be more s- simple than that. If you say that you are in Christ, Christian, you are His disciple, then you live as Jesus did. The old NIV from the the 1970s said you you walk as Jesus walked. Which means when you recognize the greatness of Christ, His Lordship, what He has paid in order to bring you to God, and the great uh, 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 efficacy of that, the great effectiveness of that, what you do is reconstruct your life completely around the Gospel. John says in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, For we shall see Him as He is. All all who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. One of the things I've started doing uh, in my early morning walks with the dog, which used to be a time for... um, uh, you know, uh, uh, listening to music as we were walking, and 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 all of these, or listening to sermons, or listening to books on tape, or whatever it is, uh, has I've, I've stopped uh, doing that. Really, not doing it at all during that period of time, and it's become a time of prayer. And the first prayers of the morning are about centering my life around purity, centering my life around self-control, centering my life around love, centering my life, you know, reconstructing my life around the Scripture and the commandments and obedience to the Word of God as found in Scripture. Now, there's a lot of really practical things that, that John talks about in terms of not loving in just in Word, but also in deed and making sure that, you know, you're not just saying, you, you know, things like... Uh, 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 you know, I love you and 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 may God bless you and these kinds of things, but if you see a brother in need and you 've got the material needs to be able to, to to fill that need and to meet that need and to take care of that need, and you don 't do it, how can the love of God be inside of you? But he says in First John chapter three and verse fourteen, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. You go into the fourth chapter and you find one of the most compelling, one of the most captivating, gripping descriptions of what it means to love and the encouragement to love and, and what love does to your life and how to love. You, you find one of the most compelling chapters of love in the entire Bible. And my, my challenge would be just very simply in terms of reconstructing your life around the recognition that Jesus is Lord is to pray on a daily basis that the kind of love that John is talking about in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is the kind that begins to flourish in your life and the kind that begins to blossom in your life of loving God and loving each other and, and being blessed in that way. Ben's going to lead us in a song of praise right now. Some of our shepherds are going to come down to the front. And if there are spiritual needs, maybe your life has not been centered around Christ as as Lord. And not just as Savior, but as Lord. And your life could, could use a little remodeling. It could use a little reconstructing because of the very fact that you have centered your life on the Messiah as His disciple, Jesus of Nazareth. And maybe it's some... Uh, some sin that you've been struggling with for for a long period of time. Maybe it's just some doubts. Maybe it's the same kind of encouragement is needed in your life that was needed in this first century church that John is writing to. Whatever the needs are, whatever they could be, these shepherds are down here at the front eager to hear them and to pray with you and to counsel. We're going to ask that you come down and talk to them during the singing of this song if you have those kinds of needs. And for the rest of us, we're going to stand and praise God for the greatness of His blessing to us. Let's stand and praise God together. God forgave my sin In Jesus' name I've been born again